MailChimp presents. Clusters aren't always a bad thing. Like a cluster of stars in the night sky, or those crunchy little clusters in your cereal. But you know what's never good? A clustomer. A clustomer is what happens when marketers group customers with very different behaviors into one big messy audience. Like when someone receives a new customer coupon code, but they're already an existing customer. Intuit MailChimp can help. They offer email marketing personalization tools that help marketers send product recommendations and discounts based on behavior data, turning your customers back into the unique customers that they are. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide number of customers in 2021 and 2022. If you're looking for a model of somebody who rejected everything that culture told her she had to be as a woman and turned out really happy and healthy, I'm very happy to be that for you. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean you have to make the choices that I made, but holy mother of God, am I glad I made the choices I made. Elizabeth Gilbert is an author, journalist, podcast host, and from what I hear, a very good friend. She's probably best known for her memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, which was turned into a movie starring Julia Roberts in 2010. And she hasn't stopped putting out incredible work, including one of my favorite novels, The Signature of All Things, and her book on the creative process, Big Magic, which is a popular resource for people who make art. Liz doesn't have children, and she has devoted herself to her work, her life, and her community. But it wasn't as simple as knowing she didn't want kids and then not having them. Growing up in a small town in the 70s and 80s, becoming a wife and mother felt like it was part of her fate. Once she got older, she had to disentangle herself from a husband, a home, and a lifetime's worth of social conditioning in order to live her truth. I'm Ashley C. Ford, and this is Going Through It, a show about important moments in people's lives and how they navigate them. This season, I'm asking how people figure out whether or not to become parents. In this episode, I'm talking to Liz Gilbert about how choosing not to have kids helped her learn to reject feelings of shame and alienation and put her own desires first. Having kids, for a lot of people, women in particular, I think feels almost like an inevitability in life. You know, like, it's the story we're told in general as a society that it's just a thing that happens when you get to a certain place in your life. Uh-huh. I'm curious yeah, if you yeah. ever felt that way about it. I have a term for that in my head, for that mindset, which I call 13th grade. Mm. You know, like what I call 13th grade is just like, well, then you go to 13th grade, right? Then you get married and then you get a house and then you get a job and then you get kids and then you retire and then you get grand. You know, it was like 13th grade was just like this thing was plotted for you 
you know, it never occurred to me that I had any say in any of that, which is bananas, because parallel to that 13th grade story, that software program that was just running in culture and in my family, um, I come from, you know, a long line of, especially on my mom's side, it's like everything's about family. You really don't have any value unless you have a husband and kids. So while that software program was running me, without me ever giving it any consideration, I had this parallel life that was running, which was very divergent from the way that my mother and my grandmothers lived. You know, I was getting educated, and I was becoming a feminist, and I was moving to New York, and I was having lots of relationships, and I was having a career that I was passionate about, and I was an artist, and I was on a spiritual journey. But I kind of, for a while, I felt like I was trying to live both of those paths at the same time. Yes. And for a little while, I pulled it off. I got married brain-achingly young, 24, and we bought a house, and I promised my then-husband that that I was stalling. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, when I'm 30, um, we'll start having kids. And as that deadline approached, I always say, instead of having a child, I had a complete nervous breakdown. When did you start to realize that maybe you didn't want kids. When did that start to feel like a thing that was true and that you could be honest with yourself about? What ha- was happening was I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get my mind in line. Mm-hmm. So what I was trying to do was tell my ambivalence to shut up, right? It's like, stop being so ambivalent, make a commitment. Everyone else is doing this. Why are you so selfish? So the cultural programming um, was trying to override what I now see as my true voice, which was just saying, this is going to kill me if I do this. This is going to kill everything that I am that I love. And I remember my husband at the time saying, but you would love the kids if you had them. And I was like, yes, I would, but I would hate my life. And I (laughs) I didn't say it, but I was like, and I'd also hate you. (laughs) I wouldn't hate them. I I would just... There's something in me that would die such a tragic death that I would I would be a really sad woman. So I started interviewing every woman I met, whatever age they were at. I did exactly what you're doing yeah. with this podcast. <laughs> I did exact everybody I met, and I was yeah. like, "What has been your experience?" Because I was trying to find somebody who would answer it for me, mm-hmm. and all I got was a million different experiences. And I saw that there is no one experience with this. But a big turning point moment for me, um, I went to a party of a friend of mine who was an artist, married to a cool guy who was also a successful artist. They lived in a loft, and she had just had a baby, and they had a party, and she was so exhausted. And at the end of the night, she was, like, up to her elbows in dishes, cleaning up after this party with these circles under her eyes, just looking so exhausted. And... In the other room were all the guys, including my husband, watching something on TV and drinking beer and laughing. And I remember stopping in the middle of the kitchen, and two things happened. One is that I said to myself, you are out of your mind if you think this is not your future. It was like this divine voice said to me, I'm showing you. This is precisely what it's going to be like. And you will be furious. You'll be so furious. And the second thing is that I said out loud, I pointed to the room where the men were, and I said, I wonder what it would feel like to be that entitled. (laughs) And I just saw her turn from the sink with this exhausted rage on her face, and I thought, yeah, this is is what I'm heading toward, and I don't have long to get off. I don't quite know how to undo all this, because we've got the mortgage and the marriage and the promises, and the, but I, I've got to get off this train. Um, and 
someone else might have looked at it and seen an entirely different story, like how lucky she is. She's got this career. She's got a husband. She's beautiful. She's got a healthy baby. Why can't I have that? Like a different person would have looked at that scene and not selectively edited what I saw. But what I saw was nothing less than the voice of God saying, girl, get honest. Like, this is what you're about to do. And it's going to look just like this. And I was like, oh, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Pass. After you started having this intense reaction to the idea of having kids, right? You've seen the exhausted rage. You've had these conversations. You, God has spoken to you and told you, shown you, this is what you're headed for on that path. How did you react? Like, did you keep that feeling to yourself? I was expressing it, but I was expressing it with so much shame. Mm. So for the same reason that an exhausted, angry mother might not be allowed to let anybody see that she's exhausted and angry. A young woman who's saying, I don't want to do this, is speaking into that same shame vortex (sighs) of how dare you, you know? And I took that on and I internalized that and I got very sick. I mean, I got, it was so interesting because it was a weird, almost like parallel physiological imitation of morning sickness. I started throwing up every day. I couldn't keep food down. I lost a ton of weight. I now see that every atom of my body was like, I will die before I let you do this. I think my entire system was just inflamed with this battle between what constitutes the model of what makes you a socially acceptable woman, which is no small thing, because with that social acceptance comes safety? Or do you have the courage to, and you can't hide it. I was like, is there a way I can not do this without anybody noticing? Right. (laughs) Can I get divorced, sell my house, leave my husband, not have kids without anybody noticing? You know, like they noticed and, 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 you know, they have feelings about it and they still have feelings about it. Um, It breaks my heart for that 30-year-old. It breaks my heart what I had to go through physically, emotionally, and spiritually to summon the courage to say, "This is I, I'm not doing this," um, yeah. and and that that was the beginning of Eat, Pray, Love. I mean, I left I left that marriage, and instead of having a baby, I, I went and did Eat, Pray, Love. We'll be right back. On Going Through It, our guests talk about the passions and decisions that impact them most. You can find similar stories on MailChimp's Bloom Season, a digital resource offering actionable insights for small business success. Throughout these episodes, I'll be introducing you to a few of the entrepreneurs featured in Bloom Season. Immediately, we got over 40,000 downloads that first month. An independent, queer-owned platform. Meet Kel Rakowski, the founder and CEO of Lex, an app for LGBTQ plus people to find and create connections of all kinds. I came out in my early 30s, and even living in New York City, I felt really isolated from queer community. I didn't really have friends to go to parties with. I was kind of stuck using apps that were meant for dating to find friends. 
Aside from the apps, Kel was mostly using her socials to share about lesbian history. As engagement with her content grew, it planted the seed for creating a dedicated space to find like-minded people. Now, roughly two years later, her app Lex has taken root. There's this really specific review in the app store that happens to be amazing. It's one person being like, Lex is the best. They have found best friends on it, their roommate on it, folks to help care for them after top surgery. They've found dates. They've organized basketball meetups, done yoga, like top to bottom your whole life. They've found connection through Lex. And that is the most beautiful thing. Kel herself understands how deep a bond made online can go. I was a teenager in the 90s, so it was really hard to connect with people that were like you. So I felt super isolated, and I remember being introduced to AOL, and I just found really cool friends. I became best friends with this one guy. I convinced him to go to the same art school that I went to. We met the first day of class. (laughs) We were inseparable. Creating community is not only at the core of Lex, it's also Kel's goal for the people who work with her. At Lex, we have birthdays off, and then we also have every other Fridays off. If you need to go out for a walk, get fresh air, hey, I'm kind of blocked, I need a break. It's just a place to let people know and encourage that kind of rest that you can take in the middle of your workday. However, we're curating our community and nurturing our community on Lex app. We're making sure that we're doing it with our team. Learn more about Kel Rakowski and other entrepreneurs at MailChimp.com slash BloomSeason. And now, back to the episode. When did you start talking about this without apology? I'm still breaking that down, Ashley. Really? You know, like this is how deep. Do you do you know the work of a guy named Dr. Mario Martinez? He talks about tribal shaming. No, tell um, me. So he's done research on something that he calls tribal shaming. So shame is an incredibly powerful, socially unifying force that is engineered to prevent us from leaving the pack. Mm-hmm. because it's very dangerous if people start leaving the pack. The only way the pack is safe is if everybody stays in the pack. So it's extraordinarily threatening when an individual says, I'm going to go in a different way from the pack. And the pack has to respond by saying, don't you dare. And the way they pull you back in is through honor shaming. So is by telling you that you have no honor, that you are a person of no honor, that you have a, a betrayed and abandoned your gender, your family, your culture, your duty. There's a subtle languaging around shaming that's very controlling, which is like, oh, you think you're better than us? Mm. Oh, now that you have it, oh, you've got an education, so you think you're better than us? Oh, you don't really belong to us anymore. Since you moved to that big city, you don't really, oh, little miss got a doctorate. Right. And so what Dr. Mario Martinez teaches people is how to own it by actually saying, either out loud or writing it down in a letter that you never send, I'm going to betray you now. Hey, family, I'm going to betray all of you now. I'm going to abandon all of you now. I'm going to outperform all of you now. I actually am not accepting any of this. Um, And it is because I think I'm better than you. Mm. (laughs) 
It is. You own because once you do that, then he said, then you create your own field of honor, your own code of honor, where you say, I don't honor what you honor, but here's what I honor. I honor autonomy. I honor economic independence for myself. I honor the freedom to travel wherever I want. I honor a passionate creative path where I devote myself to my art. I honor a tribe made of friends. This is my code of honor. So Uh. you can't tell me that I have no honor anymore because I rejected your code. And he always says you can tell you're healed when somebody attacks your honor with any one of those little tiny digs and instead of laughing it off or caving, you come back at them with rage. And you say, how dare you? How dare you say that I'm not a complete woman because I don't have a child? How dare you say that because I have two divorces, I'm a failure of some sort? Get the fuck away from me. <laughs> Who do you think you are? Yeah, you just fire, you like take a fire hose and you just burn them back because you're like, get out of my field of honor. You have no right to judge me. Mm. And in that strength... You heal, and your body doesn't have to carry the shame anymore. When I was 30, I could barely walk. I was going to doctors who said I needed knee replacements. I was a writer. I couldn't type because my hands were so swollen with carpal tunnel. I couldn't eat. My body was literally absorbing all that shame. And now I'm 53, and I just got back from two months in Costa Rica (laughs) with my best friend where I rented a Jeep, and we bounced around that country, around the jungles and the beaches, having the best time, just free and climbing up mountains and swimming in oceans and, you know, because I don't absorb that shame anymore. I don't even know if the word is uncanny or relevant, (laughs) but as I've been having these conversations, I'm realizing that I'm maybe looking for a new kind of group, a community of people whose honor codes match with mine and who I can lean on to help me chip away at this question of whether or not to have children. I think it's wise because you're trying to bring in as many voices as you can to see as many perspectives so that you can have some inspiration and perhaps permission, you know? And, And I think that if not the central spiritual question or life question that I've lived in and I'm still living into is... Do I have permission to be free? Do I have permission to be free from a lot of stuff that I was taught? What is the cost of freedom? Has anyone else done it? Where are they? Can I interview them? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really love saying to women is, you know, gather all the information that you can, talk to everybody that you can, really dig down and try to get into the honesty. But if you're looking for a model of somebody who rejected everything that culture told her she had to be as a woman and turned out really happy and healthy. I'm very happy to be that for you. (laughs) Now, it doesn't mean you have to make the choices that I made, but holy mother of God, am I glad I made the choices I made. The cherishing life that I have now, I could not have had this life. And one of the other really big moments for me, I think sometimes you got to see that someone else did it and that they weren't brutally punished, right? I was doing a story for GQ 25 years ago as I was in all of this, trying to figure all this out. And I was being photographed by Mary Ellen Mark, the great American photographer. So cool. You know, Jeans, Southwestern vibe, like tons of jewelry and gray hair and braids, cowboy hat, lined face. And while she was taking these pictures, I just said, hey, Mary Ellen, can I ask you a question? And she had her face behind the camera. And I said, did you ever have children? 
And she just poked her head out from behind the camera, and she said, never had him, never missed him, and went right back to her work. And that was the entire conversation. She almost threw it away casually like it was so not a big deal for her. Never had him, never missed him. And that was the positive flip side to that negative example that I had seen of my friend with the angry fury washing dishes with no help from the partner. Right. And that moment probably was more influential to me than all of the books I read and all of the interviews I did with people and all the conversations into the night I had with my girlfriends. This was the alternative. Those examples are so important. Mm -hmm. I had this teacher in high school, and she was the first woman I saw who didn't have kids, didn't want them, and she loved her life. She loved her life. She would get off work on Friday, drive to Chicago, see shows and concerts all weekend, and then come back on Monday and tell us about them. Yeah, it's amazing, right? She had her own house. She mowed her own lawn. And she was just fabulous to me. And those people, the ones without children, can really show up for kids, either as examples or as really active parts of their lives. That's what I call the anti-brigade. And, and I'm going to get really radical right now. Tell me. So what if you didn't have to defend your desire for an autonomous, creative economically stable, joyful, friend-based life of the mind by saying, don't worry, I'm still showing up and parenting and mothering in all these other ways. What What if... that wasn't even necessary because that's what I also used to do. I also mm. used to defend not being a mother by saying, yeah, but I'm really, really close with my niece and nephew. I, I help a lot of my friends with their kids. It's like I'm trying to – I'm still trying to earn the respect of the culture mm-hmm. by saying even though I may look – it's the same thing. Like I know I don't look like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but but I really am. I'm, I, I show up at the middle school plays. I mean I love showing up at middle school plays. Middle school plays are fucking amazing. They really are. <laughs> they really are. They're incredible. Like I mean I do. I love showing up for my friends' kids. But as I've gotten even older, I've even unlatched that where mm-hmm. it's like I am also no longer required to say to you, I know it looks like I'm living a life of great freedom, joy, and creativity, but don't worry, I'm still nurturing and Mm. I'm still mothering. Well, what if I'm not? Why do I have to? What if my contribution, my unique contribution to the world is what I creatively generate from my art and my imagination? What if... What if I'm not required to make a contribution? And more and more and more, I'm like stubbornly demanding that the answer is yes. But man, I have to push back so hard against family, against culture, against all the rules that I was taught, against expectation, against my own internalized guilt and shame. But I want to see what real freedom is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like really. Yeah. And I have tastes of it and I'm like, what if I just demanded that this is what it is, you know? Do I have the courage to do that and to be very disapproved of? Yeah. You're worth that. I think you are too, (laughs) as it turns out. (laughs) I want to see what a totally free Ashley C. Ford creates. 
I feel like, unfortunately, uh, it's probably just like, I don't know, a remake of Sweeney Todd uh, based on my back porch or something. But Holy shit, maybe that would wa- go somewhere. You, like, listen, <laughs> <laughs> you're just joking, but I actually just got like a little tingle down my spine that was like, I would watch the hell out of that. <sighs> I love Sweeney Todd. <laughs> I just love it. Liz, you are... A light. You are a beacon. You are such an amazing person. And I'm so, so glad that you took the time to talk with me. Thank you so, so much. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to pay back all those women 25 years ago who Mm. told me the truth about their lives when I was struggling to find my path. And then I got to see their examples and then I got to find my own way and now I get to talk about where it's led me so thank you and I have full faith in your capacity to live the most beautiful possible version of your life full faith in it thank you Les I still don't know if the most beautiful version of my life includes becoming a parent But I know that it includes having some children in my life, whether my own or other people's. And I think that'll always be true. Either way, I know for sure my life has so much value outside of my desire or ability or choice to do the work of mothering. And maybe the best decision I can make is the one that sends a tingle down my spine. Going Through It is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and MailChimp. Our producer is Emerald O'Brien. Our associate producers are Marina Hankey and Yinka Rickford-Anguin. Our managing producer is Camila Kashani. The show is edited by Aaron Edwards. Mixing by Davey Sumner. Original music by Mike Noyce and Davey Sumner with additional music from Epidemic Sound. Mara Davis is our booker. We had help from Stephen Key, Jason Richards, and Ari Saperstein. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson de Rocher. Our executive producer is J.N. Barry. Our production partners at MailChimp Studios are Julie Douglas, Sasha Brown, Christina Humphrey, and Caroline Albro. And a special thanks to my better half, without whom none of this would be possible. My assistant, Ariane Young. And thank you for listening. We know the range of experiences around this decision is so broad. And while we can't cover every story, we're grateful that we could bring you a few of them. So you want to craft an email marketing strategy, but you're not exactly sure where to start. Why not take a cue from Pack Up and Go? It's a surprise travel company that reveals their clients' destinations on the morning of their trips. The folks at Pack Up and Go designed a marketing plan that would both answer customer questions while also building their brand. Here's how they did it. Pack Up and Go started by using their customer-generated content to show off all these amazing trips that they offer building a loyal community of fans in the process. 
And then they used MailChimp's segmentation capabilities and email automations to send targeted messages that reached relevant audiences, like an automated campaign to new customers, reminding them to purchase PackUpAndGo's travel insurance. With MailChimp's help, the marketing team at PackUpAndGo has created a plan that works for them. Start crafting your email marketing strategy today at MailChimp.com.